Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <coughs> Hello, all souls. Pastor Justin here to kick off our new series. Hope you had a great Easter weekend and a post-Easter week. We are starting this new series in Genesis. We're going to look at these first 12 chapters of Genesis to begin. And uh, this is going to be, I think, one of the most formative and foundational sermon series uh, that we will do here because the majority, and I would argue nearly every significant piece of theology, Christian theology, can be found in the first four chapters of Genesis and certainly the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And so really in the very beginning of the Bible, it sets the trajectory for the entire faith. So we are going to deal with some of the biggest issues uh, that, that are, are, we're facing in the world, uh, some of the biggest theological issues, some of the biggest kind of uh, biblical themes in these next couple of weeks. And so it, it, it gives us the ability to kind of level set a little bit um, our theology, level set um, our position on some important things. Um, and hopefully drive us back to what is, uh, you know, some of the most foundational stuff uh, we have. Now, one of the things that we have to do in a series like this, anytime you're looking at texts that are very familiar, the tendency is to maybe just kind of gloss over them, read quickly, assume you know the big idea, right? So I read uh, the Bible through every year, uh, and every year I get back to Genesis 1 in January, and I go, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know all this. I know the first 12 chapters of Genesis really, really well, and there is, it's easy for me to just kind of read, kind of get through it, because I know I got a lot of book to read uh, over the course of the year. So, in order to try to combat that, we are going to take this in much smaller chunks. So, for instance, today, we are only looking at the first two verses in Genesis, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Now, here's how I want to frame this up, because I think what these first two verses do in a, in a way that is that, that I honestly marvel at, the power of God and the wisdom of God to pack so much meaning into these two verses. Um, I want us to see how these two verses create a framework or what theologians call a worldview um, that we should and can see the world through. And here's my argument. My argument is that Christianity gives us a framework to understand reality that far exceeds the usefulness or truthfulness uh, of the framework that the world gives us. Okay? So... We, are, we live in an increasingly secular society, right? We've been told, and, and maybe even some of us have believed, that as education and prosperity increases around the world, so too will secularization. Now, some of us uh, think that's probably true, that the, the world is becoming more secular. The problem is that the statistics actually don't bear that out. So I'm going to get a little statty here for a second. So try to, to track with me here. Now, it is true 
that in Western Europe and North America, the percentage of people loosely identifying as religious has shrunk. But this broad statement obscures much of what is really happening. Okay, so first, while those who identify as religious in Western Europe and North America has declined, the percentage of those who are highly committed to their faith has actually remained steady, hasn't changed much at all. What has declined is the easy nominal faith that accompanies a broadly religious culture. So that's truth number one. Number two, this change in Western Europe and North America doesn't reflect worldwide trends. According to the Pew Research Center, by 2060, the world will in fact be more religious than it is today. It predicts moderate growth for Christianity, which will continue to be the world's largest religion, and that Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism will decline slightly, and for Judaism to hold steady. Atheism, agnosticism, and nunism, on the other hand, are expected to decline worldwide from 16% to 13%. Okay? Now, some of this is due to birth rates. Religious people have more children and more sex. Hallelujah. And uh, as uh, one author, Rebecca McLaughlin, who I will quote uh, a couple times today, says in her book, uh, Confronting Christianity, she says, it may be a comfort to secularists who would rather imagine believers outbreeding them than outthinking them. But it's not the case that, as predicted, increased education would lead to increased secularization. Worldwide, Jews and Christians are still the most educated groups with the smallest educational gap between men and women. Indeed, highly educated Christians are more likely to be weekly churchgoers than their uneducated Christian brethren. Okay, so here's, here's what she's arguing. There's a, there's a theory, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, a theory called secularization theory that as the world goes uh, from being primarily developing world or third world countries into first world countries, that the world will grow more and more secular. That has just simply not been the case, right? So why have we heard the opposite story so loudly and dramatically? Why does it feel like the world is becoming more and more and more secular all around us? A couple reasons. One, because among young Western European and North American students, things are changing. Okay, and this is, this is really important for us. Um, according to the American freshmen, incoming college students who claimed no religion rose from 20% to 30% between 2006 and 2016, which is significant. 16% uh, said that they have none, uh, no religion, 8.5 of that said they are agnostic, and 6.4% called themselves atheists. Now, while these are noticeable changes, keep in mind that still 60% of college students call themselves Christians, which is 10 times the amount that call themselves atheists. Okay, so are the numbers moving? Yes. Are they dramatically different? No. In fact, the changes that we are seeing are largely monocultural, okay? At historically black colleges, 85.2% of students identify as Christian and only 11% as either agnostic, atheist, or none. That whole group is only 11%. So in other words, the rise in atheism is primarily among young white men. 
Okay? It is a monocultural movement by and large. Okay? Um, in spite of all this, Peter Berger, who is one of the, kind of the foremost theorists around secularization theory, uh, and, and he was back in the 1960s, has actually recanted his earlier claims about this theory. He says this, the world today, with some exceptions, is as furiously religious as it ever was, and in some places, more so than ever. This means that a whole body of literature by historians and social scientists loosely labeled secularization theory is essentially mistaken. Rodney Stark says, he's a Catholic historian, says after nearly three centuries of utterly failed prophecies and misrepresentations of both present and past, it seems to carry the secularization doctrine to the graveyard of failed theories and there to whisper, rest in peace. This is good news, right? This is good news. Why is this good news? Because religion in general and Christianity in particular are good for society. They are good for our world. So if the world is in fact becoming more religious or, or at least not becoming more secular, this is good news for our world. In fact, Harvard professor by the name of Tyler Vanderweel wrote a uh, USA Today op-ed in which uh, was titled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. Citing statistics from his work, he argues that regular church attendance, quote, reduces mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period, increases optimism, self-control, and sense of purpose, while lowering rates of depression, suicide, and divorce. This is just the effect of attending services regularly. It has a real, tangible, uh, mental, emotional effect on people who are regularly engaging in religious practice. This is not even to say that they've become Christians or become Jews. They're just regularly engaging and the, the result is significant. Uh, NYU social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt, who is also a noted atheist, argues that surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than our secular people. Religious believers give more money than their secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time to and of their blood. In other words, Religion in general, and I will argue Christianity in particular, provides a framework of reality that maps more effectively onto real life in a way that allows people to make sense of the world, to have categories for lived experiences like love and loss and work, and in so doing, increases a person's sense of self and purpose in the world. In other words, it gives us the why behind our normal human activities in a way that atheism simply cannot. How does it do that? For that, we will finally turn to Genesis 1, 1 and 2. The entire Bible begins with these words that you well know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's creative work gives us purpose. 
Christianity gives purpose to people in ways that atheism and agnosticism simply cannot. A MIT professor by the name of Alan Lightman says, our consciousness, this is an atheist guy, our consciousness and our self-awareness create an illusion that we are made out of some special substance, that we have some kind of special ego power, some I-ness, some unique existence. But in fact, we are nothing but bones, tissues, gelatinous membranes, neurons, electrical impulses, and chemicals. We humans have an illusion of I-ness, an illusion that we are unique beings, real moral entities, but it is just an illusion. We are stuff like donuts. This is what he says. Now, I, for one, love donuts and give them great value. So this isn't, you know, the, the sick burn that he thinks that it might be. But let's consider his argument here for a moment. Alan Lightman, MIT professor, as an atheist, looks at all of humanity and goes, meh, it's stuff, it's material, it's not different than donuts and rocks and bananas and monkeys and anything else. There is no unique uh, identity or sentience or, in his words, I-ness, like a sense, a unique sense of self. Right? Like a banana doesn't have a sense of self. It doesn't have uh, an identity that it embraces, right? Neither truly does a dog. The dogs don't have that ability to do so either or other animals. And he is arguing that in fact, neither do humans. Now, do we have psychological advantages over those things? Sure, but there's nothing unique about us that sets us apart. Now, there's lots of problems with this, but the first one is, no one actually lives like this. And, and in fact, even atheist philosophers don't live like this. And you can't, you couldn't possibly live this way. So if, you're, if your worldview, if your sense of humanity only works in the vacuum of academia, you've got a real problem. Now, atheists will argue, isn't it enough to experience these things as if they are real, even if they are in fact, stop Siri, even if it, in fact they are not? No, it is not in fact. That, that is not enough because we have real lives with real relationships, with a real sense of self, a real need for purpose. And so no, we simply do not have the ability to pretend as if these things are real. We need them to be real. Jordan Peterson, uh, whose uh, uh, theological convictions are a bit oblique, uh, says this, the purpose of life is finding the largest burden that you can bear and bearing it. Now, that's a great idea. I love the charge of that. But my question to Mr. Peterson would be, why? Why should we do that? Without a moral framework, without a, a, a deity to uh, impute upon us a sense of like what is right and wrong and is there a sense of right and wrong, why in the world would I bear a heavy burden? There's no reason for that. There's no argument for that, right? There's no purpose for bearing a heavy burden. If the reality of what Alan Lightman said is true, that there's nothing special about us, then why would I not just seek the, the, the easiest road I could possibly walk down. Christianity, 
on the other hand, says that we're made in the image of God, that we reflect God, that we reflect his character and his purpose, that we were offered with him perfect relationship, that we were given a cultural mandate in Genesis 1 to, to go and to make something out of the things that God gave us, to cultivate and care for and protect God's world. The Bible tells us that we have a telos, this Greek word for purpose, that we were made for something, right? That, that, that jives, even if you don't agree with the Bible, you don't agree with those ideas about imago, you live like you do. You live like you do, right? I, I just flew in from Portland a few minutes ago, in fact, and was sitting to, next to this woman who is an actress and or trying to be an actress and I mean, isn't everybody here? And, uh, and, and she, she, at one point in the conversation said, I just, I don't know what my purpose is. Now, th what's, what's so interesting about that is she gave no indication that she was a religious person whatsoever. She may be, and it just didn't come up. I don't know. But when I told her I was a pastor, she didn't respond in any positive or negative way. But the presupposition that she has is that she should have a purpose. That there is a purpose in the universe and she just hasn't tapped into it yet. She just hasn't found it yet. But from an atheistic perspective, what in the world does that even mean? She's a donut. There is no purpose for a donut other than for me to eat it. So Christianity teaches you were made. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You were made. You have a purpose. You have a place in this universe and a reason for being. Part of our purpose is to, to discover what that purpose is, what our unique piece in this larger mission of God might be. So let's not stop with uh, easy answers and be satisfied by easy answers like, well, there is no purpose. You know better. You feel that desire, that longing for some reason to be. I, I would encourage you, if you're, especially if you're not a Christian, to keep scratching at that itch. Keep hunting down what that means because it doesn't jive with what you say is true about the world. Now, Christianity gives purpose in a way that, that atheism or agnosticism does not, but it doesn't just do that. Verse two says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Christianity doesn't just give us purpose, but Christianity also explains our pain. The very beginning of God's creative work, the world, the universe was chaos. It was disordered chaos. There was no, no structure to it, no system, no logic to it at all. God entered into the chaos and created order out of it. Christianity describes not only the beginning of all things as chaos, but describes creation as taking that chaos and ordering it in such a way that would cause humans to flourish, right? The, the garden in Genesis 1 and 2 was a place of maximal human flourishing. It was a place where we existed in perfect relationship with God, each other, ourselves, and God's creation. That, that was not just that God created a system out of order, not just some structure out of disorder, not just some order out of chaos, but the perfect order, the perfect structure, the perfect system for our fullest flourishing. 
Now, uh, it doesn't take long before we are thrust back into chaos by the sin of Adam and Eve. So for us, the world of kind of re-chaosed world that we live in is the only world we have known. But it's important for us to see, like it, it began with chaos, God ordered it, we brought chaos back in through the work of sin. Chaos and its resulting pain, which is always the result of chaos, is the shared human experience. No matter who we are, we know pain. Pain is a lot of things. It's the inevitable consequence of free will, both directly and indirectly. It's pain that we've brought on ourselves and pain that has been brought on us, pain that we have brought on others. Atheism and agnosticism cannot tell you what your pain is. And I don't just mean you've got a broken arm. I mean the deeper, more existential, emotional, relational, mental pain that we all experience. Atheism cannot account for it. In fact, for the atheist, your pain is not real. Why would that be the case? One, because as we already read, you are not real in any meaningful sense. Right? You are not an existential being, meaning you are just the combination of physical things about you. The things that are happening in your brain that are, are, are firing synapses. Everything has a mathematical explanation, a scientific explanation. There is no other, greater, deeper sense of who you are. So any, any kind of uh, emotional or existential pain that you experience can be explained in purely mathematical terms. It's not more than that. It's not deeper than that. Number two, because if you have no objective way to understand what ought to be, you can't say something is wrong, right? So we would say, um, and, and it's become very popular these days to talk about how people have harmed you or, or the, the, the triggering that a person has experienced, the, the abuse that they have experienced. And I'm not trying to say that that stuff doesn't exist. I'm just saying it presupposes that there are is a way things ought to be, and this experience was harmful in the sense that it wasn't what things ought to be. Richard Rorty, a very famous atheist philosopher, was honest about this. He said, there is no answer to the question, why not be cruel? Why not be cruel? The only way to answer the question, why not be cruel, is to do morality. To, to propose an ethic, to say this is what is right and therefore this is wrong. But atheism can't do that. So while an atheist, an honest, consistent atheist may be able to affirm you feel something, but you can't call what you experienced wrong, you actually can't call it harm, you can't call it abuse because it can't be moral. It can't have any deeper existential meaning. It can only just be an event that happened and you feel things because that's what your synapses in your brain have told your body to feel. It's nothing more than that. But again, we know that's not true. We know experientially it's more than that. We, it has to. We, we, everything in us is reaching for greater answers to why we hurt. When someone leaves us or rejects us, when someone dies in our life, it, we, we don't go, well, you know, mathematically I can explain why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. This is a purely biological response. 
I mean, some people might say that, but you don't want to be friends with those people, right? The reality is that these things are meaningful to us. We mourn. Mourning, the act of mourning is a, is a purely moral act. It is us saying, death should not be. This person should be alive. And I'm mourning, I'm, I'm upset about, I'm emotionally responding to the gap between what I think should be and what is. Recently, the Senate, United States Senate's Joint Economic Committee um, charts the scale of the increase in despair, which is a really interesting thing to try to measure. There was a doubling from 22.7 deaths, deaths of despair per 100,000 Americans in 2000. So in, in the year 2000, 22 people died from a, a death of despair. So that's suicide and overdose. And there's a, a list of ways people die that they're categorizing as deaths of despair. There were 22.7 per 100,000 in 2000. By 2017, 17 years later, that had gone from 22.7 up to 45.8 more than doubling in 17 years, which easily eclipsed all prior 20th century highs. And this was before COVID, before lockdowns, before racial tension, before riots, before rampant homelessness, before economic crisis. This was 2017. Those were good years compared to what we're experiencing now. And it had doubled. And I think part of this increase in despair can be attributed to a loss of purpose, and a loss of the meaning of pain. That is, as we in the West, amongst young white people primarily, have seen secularization grow among those who might otherwise have been kind of default religious, even if they weren't committed to faith, they had a default religious worldview, it gave them a sense of purpose. They knew why they existed, if, if even they didn't follow it very closely. And there, there was a, a, a like a category for pain. They were able to say with, with conviction, like this hurts and it, it, it hurts for real and it's meaningful. And, and the increase in secularization among this group and, and the, the increase in atheism wipes those two things away. There's no ability to find purpose or make meaning out of pain. Christianity says that your pain is real and that it's meaningful that it suggests what all of us know is true, that the world is not as it should be. We can say this wholeheartedly and with a theological foundation. Because God had intention in his creation, the failure of that intention hurts. And that pain is meant to awaken your heart to the failure of this world. Did you catch that? That God created this world with purpose. And so when we experience pain, it's because that purpose has been thwarted or that purpose has been crushed or broken in some way. And the pain that results from that is meant to awaken us to, gosh, this is not okay. The world is not functioning as it was meant to function. And that's supposed to open our eyes and awaken us to the realities of the failure of this world. C.S. Lewis very famously in The Problem of Pain said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We aren't left in Christianity. We aren't left in our pain. 
We aren't left in that real meaningful pain. There, there is more to it than that. And that's the third thing that Christianity provides. Christianity provides presence. The end of verse two says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, a few years ago, Anderson Cooper for CNN uh, interviewed Stephen Colbert. And they were talking about their, their experience growing up. And Anderson Cooper said this, he said, one of the things my mom would often say is that she said, I, I should never ask why me, never ask why me, like, why did this happen to me? She would always say, why not me? Why would I be exempt from some of what has befallen countless others over the centuries? I think that's another thing that has helped me think, yes, of course, why not me? This is part of being alive. Suffering is, you know, the sadness, suffering. These are all, you know, you can't have happiness without having loss and suffering. So Anderson Cooper is expressing this, this attitude of like, there is loss and there is pain and that's part of the human experience and why not me rather than saying, why me? And Stephen Colbert's response is remarkable. He says, and in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ is that God does it too. You're really not alone. God does it too. God suffers too. God has pain too. We're not left alone. Atheism says you have no purpose in your life and your pain is an illusion. You, you don't really have any sense of self. That's an illusion. Therefore, any pain cannot be moralized. It cannot be explained. It's just synapses firing in your brains that doesn't want what is happening. And you're alone in it. Christianity says you have purpose. Therefore, your pain is actually... Uh, meant to open your eyes to that purpose and the fact that what's happening around you is not what God purposed for you and that God is in this with you. The presence of God is the final reason that Christianity provides life with meaning. God made us for a purpose. We experience the pain of unrealized telos, but we are not left there. He was there in creation in the midst of the chaos. He was there in the garden when all had been ordered. He was there after Adam and Eve reintroduced chaos. He was there as Israel rebelled and repented over and over and over. He was there on earth in the form of Jesus. He stepped into ultimate pain and suffering on the cross. And the great hope of the gospel is that one day we will be with him, living in his presence, in his perfect reordering of creation. And until that day, when all is made new again, he still offers us his presence. We can know the God of the universe. He is with us now by his spirit. We can talk to him, and if we learn to listen well, hear him. One of the beauties of Christianity is that is in the wholeness of its vision. Christianity teaches that God created all things on purpose and with purpose. It teaches us that each and every one of us was formed by our divine father and stamped with his image. It teaches us that our pain is real and it's wrong. It's not as it should be. It wasn't how God intended for us to experience the world. So we can rightfully and fully mourn, crying out for justice and naming things as wrong and evil. But we are not left in the misery of our pain. We are not hopeless about injustice. Christianity teaches that God desires justice and redemption even more than we do. 
So much so that he took it upon himself to bring it about. God created, God redeems, God restores, God renews. The call of the gospel, the ask of Christianity is not to follow the right rules or even to bow to the right God, but to be brought back into the fold, to allow God to restore you back to what he made you for, to bring order back into your chosen chaos, ultimately to make you who you are. Richard Dawkins, maybe the most famous atheist of the last hundred years, looks at reality through the lens of his worldview and sees a universe that, quote, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He's wrong. When we look at reality through the lens of Christianity, we see at bottom a loving creator who was and is and always will be with us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are uh, our creator and our sustainer. You were there from the beginning. You made order out of chaos and you are making order continually out of the chaos of our lives. And we hold fast to the promise that you made us for a purpose. That purpose gives meaning to every part of our lives, the joys and the pains. But there is an end for which we were created. The end of glorifying you and enjoying you forever. That we can name the pain as sin and brokenness. We have an enemy, Satan. We have brotherhood amongst those who are also made in your image and a vision for what we should be creating together. So God, save us. Open our eyes to the failures and weakness of the world and what it has to offer. Open our eyes and stir our hearts to see the power of the gospel, the power of the Christian worldview and what it can offer to the world, that we might walk in it faithfully as, as witnesses to the truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.